we're beginning the last few hours of, of Jesus' life. Absolutely crucial part of the, the message of John. His whole purpose, once again, remind ourselves it is to encourage belief in those who do not believe and to strengthen belief in those who already believe. I'm going to tell you that this passage, the way that John sets this up, is extremely important for what is about to happen to Jesus Christ and is extremely important for anything that you and I are going to face in our lives. It's absolutely crucial. Crucial introduction into the death of Christ. We're going to dive right in. The title of our sermon today is titled, Lord of Gethsemane. The passage is John 18, verses 1 through 11. Let me ask you something. If you were in a basketball game, and it was, it was almost overtime, and there was only one shot that could be taken, who would you want to have the ball? I'm not looking at you, Mark. Yeah, no, no, no. How about if we're about to face World War III, which the way things are going right now might not be too far from the truth. Who would you want leading our nation during that time? What if you had a surgery that needed uh, to take place? It was a life and death surgery. It was absolutely crucial to have this done for you or for a loved one. Who would you want holding the scalpel. Well, on earth, my answer would be Pastor Dave. I don't know if you know Pastor Dave, but that guy is constantly calm, cool, and collected all the time. I remember I would go into his office often, and I'd be frazzled. I'd be like, can you believe this? I can't believe this is happening. And he'd be like, yeah, that's the ministry, Mark. That's the way it goes. No matter what, that guy had a composure, and I try, would try to shake him intentionally, and it just wouldn't work. And I think it was because of who he trusted in. The portrait that is pictured of Jesus Christ here in this passage is somebody who is in complete control of himself. He is in complete control of his emotions, even though he is under extreme pressure, John doesn't men mention the agony in the garden where he is sweating drops of blood because of the extreme stress that he finds himself under. But Jesus is above everybody who can keep themselves under control. He's above every politician. He's above every surgeon. He leaves them far behind. Because it is not that just that Jesus is in control of himself. Jesus is in control of the events themselves. It is not that Jesus is just able to handle his own adrenaline. He's able to dictate the result. It's not that he's just able to act wisely under pressure. Jesus is able to determine the outcome. 
He's not just able to respond skillfully to what he finds. Jesus knows what he is going to find, and Jesus Christ has already mapped out the solution to the deepest human problem of all, our sin. Jesus stands out in all of this because Jesus Christ is in control of the entire sweep of human history, even as he goes through his death. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Why does John write what he writes here? Why does John add certain things that are not found in the other three Gospels, and why does he include things that are not found in the other three Gospels? I mean, I'm sorry, why does he leave out things that are found in the other three Gospels, and why does he include things that are, fa- that are not found in the other three Gospels? Why doesn't he talk about the healing of the servant's ear after Peter tr- uh, chops it off? And why does he, ha- why does he add... One of the most important aspects of this passage, the way that the cohort reacts. Well, we have to remember, if you're reading this book and you're a new believer, and you are about to face persecution or facing persecution, you know they are coming for you. John has a message for us, doesn't he? John has a message for them, and he has a message for you and I today. And, and what happens here to Jesus, what Jesus is displaying in the garden, directly impacts our lives today. We see, as we said earlier, Jesus is the master of this situation. And I can tell you that as you go through the gardens of Gethsemane in your life, he's the master of those for you as well. We're going to look at three areas that, that speak to this in this text today. The first area is his knowledge, verses 1 through 4a. John chapter 18. I'm going to have to keep you awake today because it's hot, isn't it? So bear with me. We're going to try to get through this as, as quick as possible. Listen to what he says. When Jesus had spoken, listen to what John says. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went forth with his disciple over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. How many people have ever heard of the theological term open theism? Anyone hear that term? Probably good that you haven't. Um, If you have, I'm sure you know exactly where I'm going with this. This is Greg Boyd. He is one of the main proponents of open theism, and I'll, I'll give you that he claims, he claims unequivocally that God possesses, or he affirms unequivocally, that God possesses every divine perfection, including the attribute of omniscience, or all-knowing, that God perfectly knows 
everything, and here's where it counts, that there is to know. This is a quote from Mr. Boyd. God has chosen to leave the future wide open to all possibilities for agents to resolve that with their free choices. So, open theists affirm that the future is open to various possibilities. Why? Because this is outside the scope of the knowledge of God since it has not happened yet. So, God doesn't know what I'm about to say right now. God doesn't know where you're going after this service. He doesn't know because it hasn't happened because you guys have not made that choice. So he says, what may or may not happen in the future, according to Greg Boyd, has no truth value whatsoever. Of course, this means that God is now confined within time, something which he what? Created. Because doesn't God exist outside of time? Absolutely. Greg Boyd was teaching at a, at a service at one point, and he said, I can understand how certain people can exegetically get to this position of sovereignty. He said Calvinism, but speaking about sovereignty. But he says, I can't understand how they like it. And he said that to a bunch of laughter. Ha, 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 ha. This is what else he said. I didn't like it. And that's why I eventually found a way of reading Scripture and looking at things very differently from that. Why am I sharing all of this with you? Because Greg Boyd is actually thinking that the sovereignty of God, the omniscience of God, and the knowledge of God is actually not good for us. And he's trying to comfort people by telling them, hey, guess what? God has no idea what's going to happen in your life. It is really up to you, and, and, and God is going to react and respond to you. Let me tell you something. If that's the case, he is not God at all. He's not worthy of my worship. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Who becomes God in that situation? You and I do. So according to open theism... God doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What does he have, a book? A book of possibilities? A book of possibilities for all human beings? I would imagine my book is pretty big then. Well, if Mark does it, well, I don't know what Mark's going to do here. He may actually do that. Oh, wait, well, Mark did this, and now i got to react to this. So what's happening is God is constantly reacting to his creation. That puts the creation in control. I want you to notice what is being said here. Two times Jesus goes forth. The first time when he was with his disciples, right after the prayer, he leads them to a very specific place. The second time, it's after John tells us what? Knowing all things that are coming upon him. And I promise you, if he knows all things that are coming upon him, he knows all things that are coming upon you, and you can trust him. Oh, 
So, so it just so happens, <laughs> this part really makes me laugh because Jesus is sitting with his disciples after praying. He's like, I got a good idea, guys. I, I got a good idea. Let's, I feel like a walk in the garden. Let's just take a little walk in the garden. We'll get some breath of fresh air. We're going to go out. It's a really nice dark night. So it's a dark night. John, John mentions that. They're coming with torches. Oh, you know what, guys? I got a, I got a good idea. We're going we're gonna to have to cross over the valley of Kidron. We're going to have to cross over the brook of Kidron. You know, and, and God's up, up there, and he's putting these things together. And do you know what? The, you know what the valley of Kidron meant? It's called the valley of gloom. You know why it's called the Valley of Gloom? There's a brook in the Valley of Kidron that they cross over. What's happening right now at the temple? At the temple, there are thousands of lambs being slaughtered. Do you know what they do with all that blood? You guessed it. They dump it into the Valley of Kidron. Sorry for the graphic illustration. It is the blood that then darkens the banks in this valley, which is why some commentators believe this is why it was called the Valley of Gloom. So God's up there. This is great. You're crossing over the Valley of Gloom to your death, or what God thinks might be his death. God doesn't know if it's all going to work out. And you're going to have to cross over this brook. Oh, this brook has the blood of, of the sacrificial lambs, which we've called you, Jesus. And, and, and oh, you're going to a garden? Oh, this is where it all started. It all started in a garden. This is great. This is really going to preach. Is that what God's saying? The fall of man started in a garden because of the disobedience of man and the redemption of man is going to take place or begin in a garden because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. What a coincidence. This is great. I can't believe it's working out this way. That's insanity, isn't it? That's insanity. You know why Jesus goes forth courageously? It's because Jesus Christ hasn't lost his sovereignty. He knows all things that are coming upon them, and he goes forth to meet them. He knows how many soldiers are coming. He knows the Pharisees, the priests are coming. He knows the officers are coming. He knows that Judas is coming, and he knows what's going to happen after that. You think he knows what's going to happen in your life? Is he leading his disciples into the garden? Yeah. Are we going to face times of persecution, suffering, and pain? Let me ask you something. Is that going to surprise God? No. Can you trust him? Can you trust him? He knows it. He knows what you've been through. He knows what you're going through right now. And he knows what you're going to go through. 
And he may lead you into a dark Gethsemane. But because he went through his, he's never going to leave you in yours. The second aspect that we see here is his power. Verses 4b through verse 9. He went forth and he said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also was, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said to And they said, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he had spoken of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. This kind of reminds me of the Avengers. A lot of things remind me of the Avengers, but there's a scene. I might have mentioned this one before. It's one of my favorite scenes in in the Avengers. Loki is this god, supposedly, and he is about to take over the world. The Avengers are trying to fight against him, and then Loki meets up with, with Hulk, and he gives this wonderful little speech about, do you know who I am? I'm a god, and Hulk just picks him up by his feet and just smashes them back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it's the only time Hulk ever says anything. And he walks away and he goes, puny God. He reminded Loki of his power. That is exactly what Jesus Christ is doing right here. This is an absolutely crucial part of the text. Matter of fact, it leads us into the climax and what I believe John's main point that he is trying to get across in this passage. It's Jesus, it's funny the way this happens. And, and the first thing I want you to see is if this garden is a walled garden, which people believe it to have been, and if there is a, if there is a one entrance into the garden, Jesus then goes forth to this entrance. And what is he doing? Who is he, what, what, what role is he fulfilling? He is fulfilling the role of the good shepherd. Who is he protecting? He's protecting his sheep. And we know this because that's exactly what he says. You're not going to get by me. I'm the one you're looking for. Let these go. He steps up and puts himself on the line for his disciples, exactly what he's about to do for the sin of the entire world. He steps up, and he does so willingly. He's the faithful shepherd going forth to protect his sheep from the ravenous wolves, and wolves is exactly what they are.
I didn't talk about the Roman cohort earlier, but there's some things that we need to mention about this. I think a lot of movies don't really do this justice because we often think that this is some like little band of soldiers that come. That is not the case at all. And it adds to what is happening here. The Roman, a cohort consisted of four to six hundred men. These men, listen to some of the quotes about the Roman legionary or the Roman soldiers. They were highly disciplined, well organized, and fearsome. The Roman army was arguably the greatest military force in world history. The Roman legionary is considered to be the most well-trained, disciplined, and deadliest soldier ever produced in history. One of the fiercest warriors in history, the Roman legionary, armed in the finest armor, trained in expert fighting, instilled fear in every single enemy he faced on the battlefront. Legionaries wore chainmail shirts or plated armor. They carried two spears a sword and a massive shield. And there were six, about 600 of them coming after Jesus Christ. What happens? He speaks two words, doesn't he? The he is added, I am. What happens to them? They fall over. I don't like any of the commentaries. I'm sorry. This is, I have a bone to pick with these commentaries that say that they, one guy tripped and then they, it was like a domino effect and then they all fell over and then everyone's, or they're just so taken back by Jesus' courage. Oh, man, this guy, I mean, they're 600 highly trained professionals. They're not afraid of anybody. To die was an honor. You think this 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 supposed teacher, this rabbi, is going to scare these guys? The commentators are like, yeah, they were really shocked that Jesus stood for it. They're not shocked. He spoke the word, and the word leveled them to the ground and put them in the, in the position that every knee, every person is going to be in at one point in history, Amen. bowing before him. He shows and reveals his power to let the disciples know they're going to be safe and to let you and me know today that there is nothing more powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing. Nothing that you face in your life is more powerful than him. No sickness, no disease, no army, no nation, no king, no activist group, nothing is more powerful than him. Nobody, nothing. And we can be absolutely certain, no matter what we're going through, no matter what garden we find ourselves in, he has the power over it. He can stop it at any moment. And he's going to make sure one thing. You know what he's going to make sure of? That no matter what happens to you here on earth, you are going to be safe and sound with him in heaven. He loses nobody. He loses nobody. 
They could do whatever they want to our bodies. Nobody's taken my soul. Isn't that what he does here? Nineteen seventy one, Afghan government gave a fledgling band of Christians permission to plant a church in Kabul. It was the only Christian church building permitted in the neutral soil of Afghanistan. They permitted this place of worship only for the use among the foreign community. It was never to be used by the Afghan people. One Sunday morning, three years after the sanctuary's dedication, soldiers arrived and began to hack away at the wall between the street and the church building. One gentleman in the congregation went to the mayor and prophetically warned this. He said, if your government touches that house of God, God will overthrow your government. The mayor responded by ordering the congregation to turn over their church for destruction, thereby eliminating the need for the Afghan government to offer any compensation. They said, this building does not belong to us, it belongs to God. We cannot turn it over for destruction. Here's what they did. While the, while the government was tearing down this building, destroying it, they were serving tea and coffee to the soldiers. I think someone might need to get in the door there if someone wants to check, make sure that's not locked. They proceeded to destroy it, and it was destroyed Tuesday, July 17, 1973. That very night, this man right here, King Muhammad Zahir Shah, who had ruled for over 40 years, was overthrown in a coup. That very night. And a 227-year-old monarchy in Afghanistan came to end forever. Who's in control? Who's Lord? Jesus is. He's Lord of, over his Gethsemane. He knows what's going to happen. He has the power to take them out at absolutely any moment, and as we are going to see, this is not their will, this is God's will. Jesus is Lord over all Gethsemanes. No matter what you are facing, He is Lord. He is in complete and utter control, and you can trust Him. And notice what they did. Did they fight against the soldiers? No. They just served them tea and, tea, tea and cookies. Why? Because they know this truth. And knowing this truth, knowing that no matter what happens, he remains in complete control knowing that He's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you, knowing that He has the power over all of this and can stop anything at any moment, 
knowing this helps us surrender to His will. And we see whose will it truly is in our third and final point. Verses 10 through 11. I love Peter. Peter just always adds a little drama to the story. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest, uh, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? How many people find it hard to spiritually surrender in life? If you don't raise your hand, you're lying, so it's okay. You guys want to confess? Let me know afterwards. Surrendering to God is not always easy, is it? Surrendering to His will or what events are taking place in our life is not always easy, is it? Guy tells a story about um, being diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. He talks about this idea of spiritual surrender. His doctor told him, I can't tell you it's going to be okay. If you have people you want to see and things you want to do, now's the time to do it. He was fighting with God. He kept praying and praying for healing, which that's what we should be doing, right? But he says one time after taking out the garbage in the cold and, and being stung by the cold because of the chemotherapy treatment, he came inside and he fell to his knees and he said, instead of praying for healing, he said he prayed for God to take care of his family if anything happens to him. He said, at that moment, I surrendered my will to whatever his will is for me because I know it's the best. And he talks about this spiritual surrender and he says, look, he says, spiritual surrender, surrendering our will to God is not passive. It is a willful act of obedience. And this is exactly what we see Jesus do here. Jesus knows this is what God has given him, and he surrenders his will to God's because he knows it is good. And he knows this is the plan. Now, before, Jesus is praying, if there's another way, Lord, if you can have another will, please take this cup away from me. But if not, what does he say? Let thy will be done. Here it is. One act of disobedience in the garden, one act of obedience in the garden. Man not submitting himself to God, taking what he should not take, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, submitting his will to the Father, taking what is not his, it's ours. What we should have taken, he takes for us. But then again, Peter, Peter could have messed it all up, couldn't he have? I'm so glad that Peter makes an appearance again and allows us to learn from his actions. 
And I, I tell you what, this probably would be me. I'd be whatever little dag. It kind of. I don't know what happened to Peter at this point. It, there's a couple things. Peter could have still been sleeping. Because remember, he was sleeping when Jesus was praying. He could have woken up, he or, or, or maybe he thought he was dreaming. And he's like, man, when those soldiers come, if those soldiers come, I'm just going to take off their heads. And he misses their head, and he gets their ear. So he's a bad shot. And he, he misses his mark completely. And there's a lot that we need to learn from Peter here. It's very, very interesting because... Jesus is going to rebuke him in Matthew. And I can imagine, I don't know how you cannot look at, at Peter like, what are you doing, really? This is what we're doing right now? Did you not see what I just did to all those soldiers with two words? Do you honestly, Peter, think that I need your assistance, your little sword? Do you see there are 600 highly trained professional soldiers ready to take you out? Jesus is trying to protect them. Peter almost gets them killed. And, and this contrast, this contrast between Peter and Jesus starts here and continues into our next passage. And it's a stark, stark contrast. And we need to learn from Peter. We need to learn what not to be like. Peter's fighting God's will. That's what he's doing. Peter thinks he's defending God? No. So let's go back to our let's go back to our open theism theory. At that point, Michael's like, pass the popcorn. This is about to get really, really interesting. And 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 God is now what? He's frantic. No, Peter. Peter, and he looks up in his book, what do we do if Peter draws a sword and messes things up in the garden? Right? So God's all worried now, right? Because he has no idea what's going to happen. Peter could have ruined it, not just for the disciples, but for the entire human race. Thank you, Peter. Do you think God's worried at this point? No. He's not. But what a contrast. We don't fight with the weapons of this world. They may come for us one day. Don't be a Peter. Don't be a Peter. Jesus is going to remind Pilate later on, hey, if this were my kingdom, you guys would be done. My kingdom is not of this world, and therefore those who belong to his kingdom do not fight like this world. Jesus already won the battle for us. It doesn't mean that if we're in a period of suffering, that we don't try to alleviate that. That's not what I'm saying doesn't mean that we don't pray for healing. It doesn't mean that we don't try to take medicines. It doesn't mean that we don't go see doctors. And it doesn't mean if we're being persecuted and we have a way out that is a viable way that we don't take that way out. But if, if we understand 
that this is God's will for us. And if God allows these things to come upon our lives, and if they come at Galilee's doors one day with swords and torches, and they tell us to stop meeting under the penalty of death, we stand and say no and serve them some coffee and some muffins that are out there. And we love them with the love of Jesus Christ. And we love them into the kingdom. And we don't submit to them. We submit to His will because His will is good. That's exactly what Jesus does here. He knows the cup was given by who? By the Father. He takes the cup willingly. This wasn't some tragedy This wasn't some unplanned circumstance. God had it mapped out from all eternity. Jesus isn't being arrested here. The world is. Jesus succeeds here where Adam fails. And knowing these truths specifically... Understanding this, that the world that you and I live in is at no point or moment of time out of His control. I don't know how dark your Gethsemane is right now. He knows. He has the power. It's His will. And He's never going to leave you alone in it. He's going to make sure He loses not one. Father, it's a wonderful truth, Lord, but it's a difficult truth. Lord, I pray that this truth would take root in all of our hearts. I pray for the individuals that are in that dark place right now, that are here today or watching online. I pray that you remind them of your lordship. You remind them that you are the great I am. You remind them because Jesus went through his Gethsemane, we're never alone as we go through ours. And Lord, if they do come for us, may we love them with the love of Christ. May we stand firm on the truth. May we not fight the way this world fights, but trust in you and in your control. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.